Welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martell. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Welcome to Weird Studies. This is Phil. This week, J.F. and I are looking at two popular essays by William James, What Psychical Research Has Accomplished, published in Scribner's Magazine in 1890, and Final Impressions of a Psychical Researcher, which appeared in the American Magazine in 1909. These essays are bookends to a long career as a philosopher and psychologist. The first appeared the same year as his first great work, The Principles of Psychology, and the second appeared the year before his death. James spent a lifetime investigating psychical phenomena, telepathy, spirit mediumship, hauntings, and the like. His interest was not purely intellectual, if indeed anyone's interest is ever purely intellectual. A sickly young man, he found relief in mind cure therapy and became a proponent of the New Thought, whose modern descendants include Mitch Horowitz's The Miracle Club and perhaps a little lower on the scale of literary respectability, Rhonda Burns' The Secret. James also attended seances, discovering a medium, Lenora Piper, who somehow knew things about James that neither she nor anyone else could possibly have known. It was Piper who shook James' belief in a completely orderly and lawful universe. She became the white crow that proved to James that not all crows are black. And so, psychical research was not just the odd enthusiasm of an otherwise sensible philosopher. A paranormal experience gave James a basis for his pluralistic understanding of the cosmos, which he formulated in his late philosophical masterpiece, A Pluralistic Universe. The weird formed an integral part of his intellectual life, in a way that I, at least, find inspiring. It gives me hope that the kinds of fringy, odd things we talk about on this show really can join the kinds of intellectual conversation from which they've usually been excluded, and that they might serve not as bits of pseudo-transgressive window dressing, but as goads to our own best and most venturesome thought. William James is one of my own literary heroes, and if you've never read anything of his, I hope that our conversation might encourage you to give him a try. It is often and rightly said that whereas his brother, Henry James, wrote novels like a philosopher, William James wrote philosophical books that read like novels. Before we start the show, I'll make a quick pitch for our Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash weird studies and check out all the subscriber-only audio conversations and written essays we've published there. If you like the show, you'll like what we're making for our patrons, and your support helps us keep the show ad-free and independent. Okay, thanks for listening, and now on to our conversation. So we're, we're, 
You've been talking off the record about um, infidelity. That doesn't sound good at all. Doesn't sound good at all. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm not going to tell our listeners that I've been like thinking about this because people will always get the wrong idea. Right. <laughs> okay, but the subject of infidelity came up for very purely intellectual reasons. <laughs> oh, um, come on. <laughs> Oh, that's not suspicious at all. Uh, forget it. So, <laughs> because actually, one of the things I wanted to talk about is like people who insist on things for purely intellectual reasons always seem to be be bullshitting themselves and everyone else. No, oh, yeah, true enough, true enough. Like, there's an actual interest we have in certain, and and infidelity is one conceptual way into the topic. My point was this: but if something happens when you become infatuated with someone. Uh, kind of automatism kicks in. Well, you're mm, not... Yeah. You know, there's that... Dostoevsky was a master of this particular type of psychology where a character has decided on a course of action but pretends to still be debating it for a long time. Yeah, yeah, that's really good. Crime and punishment is all about that. Raskolnikov knows, like, or, or has already made the decision to kill that old lady, but... He spends his days ruminating and debating it and pretending he would never do that, even as he's <laughs> planning it meticulously. Yeah. It's all working out in his yeah. head. And I think that happens with infidelity. You'll have someone in a, a decent relationship that works. Obviously, the infatuation is long past, but all of a sudden they meet someone and then this mechanism, this, this, this process starts to happen. And then they're at first they're just entertaining it. Then all of a sudden they're in it. And then if it's reciprocal, it's debatable where the line is between free choice and a kind of like weird automatism. So that when you're the spouse at the receiving end or like the, the victim end of the equation, you're like putting your husband's clothes in the washing machine. All of a sudden you smell this perfume and that smell tells you that the person you're living with is not who they seem to be. There's all this other shit. But that person, the husband, is going through the same thing. He's experiencing himself as a new weird creature. And it's... That's it, interesting. You know? Because he's in the... He's, who would deceive someone like that? Like, I'm not saying people aren't deceptive, but I'm saying that I think more often than not... The deception is much more complex than just like, I actually don't care about my wife anymore. I'm going to cheat on her. It's more like the person is becoming divided and several different people at once. So yeah. that the stream of thought they're on while they're with the mistress isn't at all the stream of thought they embark upon when they come back home. They're actually living yeah. these two different personhoods at the same yeah. time. And that's traumatic for yeah. all parties, I think. Yeah, that's really interesting. It makes sense of people who say things like, it wasn't really me, or I didn't feel like myself, or whatever, and all kinds of different situations where people are trying to account in retrospect for things that they did that don't make sense to them. Like, none of this is personal experience, but like someone running away in combat, you know, deserting your post in wartime, you know, that's a capital offense. And, or at least, I don't know if it is now, it always has been historically, that's considered one of the worst things you can do. That is considered a profound act of betrayal. I wonder if it's, it still is a capital offense in the field, even though... I have no doubt that there are, to this day, 
militaries of countries that have abolished capital punishment. I have no doubt that there are instances of soldiers who turn tail and run in a firefight, who abandon their post, who commit acts of betrayal, and who are shot. Yeah. Summary judgment in the field by a commanding officer, because I think that that is in that context. And again, I don't have any context for this myself, a personal context, but like, I think that is considered a shocking, unforgivable betrayal. Yes. Very much like discovering another woman's panties in your bed or, or something like that. Yeah. The betrayal is an interesting topic. It is an interesting topic. It's a division within the self that is as potentially as traumatic for the perpetrator as it is for the victims. And puzzling, too, because I remember reading somewhere that something soldiers who are court-martialed for desertion often say that they don't remember themselves doing it or that it seemed like everything was happening in a dream, that they didn't seem to be in command of their own behavior. There is often a kind of testimony that there's a sort of a division in the self where the rational self, or we might say the higher self, is sort of looking on helplessly while this new split off self is just doing its thing. Right. Um, acting in for, out of base motives of self-preservation or gratification or whatever. Right, right. And I, and I think, I mean, just think of something like as common and as appalling as murder, you know? Mm. I mean, whenever I read about a murder, my first question is always the normal one, which is what could bring someone to do that to someone else? Jesus Christ, that's intense. And it happens all the time, but it's such an anomalous, insane event. I mean, imagine being part of an event, a murderous event in this world, yeah. like either just standing there or being an agent or a passive receiver of murder. Like, it, yeah. it's just, it's it must feel so surreal. At the same time, it's extremely common. And we break down these events, we analyze them in courtrooms where they're reduced to these just like elemental components that we can look at and then we can ascribe responsibility, etc. But the idea is that when it happens, a murder must feel very much like a kind of weird thing, like something really weird is going on. You've mentioned that before, like the scenario where you're sitting in a restaurant and the couple starts to bicker, they start to fight, and all of a sudden it gets louder. And heated. It gets heated. And all of a sudden it creates this this ambiance of dread for everyone around. Well, yeah, it's like, like a current that just passes yeah. through everybody simultaneously. Well, imagine... Being present at a murder. Yeah, exactly. In whatever capacity. I mean, I can imagine almost the taste of the air in a room where a murder has just been committed or is about to be committed. Like this kind of electric aluminum taste of... Yeah, it would be metallic and ozone-y. Right, like the, 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 the molecules that constitute the objects of the room are getting excited by this on some subatomic level. I don't know. But then the, so the first question is, who could bring themselves to do that? The second question is, how do they think they can get away with it? How could someone think they could kill somebody, eliminate someone from the equation of existence, and expect to somehow get away with it, even though some people do? And then you wonder, well, how much foresight is involved, even in a premeditated murder? It seems like a lot of these instances might be examples of these other selves, these split off splinter selves that start to kind of like 
possess you, take over your life. And that splinter self doesn't actually give a shit what happens after the murder. Because once the murder happens, it's gone. It's gone, yeah. It's almost sort of like this. I think it's a Simpsons joke where Homer is, as usual, making some terrible decision. And somebody points out what the consequences of that decision would be. And Homer's like, well, that's for tomorrow, Homer, to deal with. (laughs) And he's like, man, I don't envy that guy. Yeah, yeah. We do that all the time, actually. We treat the self that's going to have to deal with the mess we're making now. It's just like, that's for tomorrow me to deal with. Right. Right. I think of this all the time with grading because I fucking hate grading. It's my least favorite thing I have to do regularly in my life. And the only way to do grading in an unpainful way is to do a little bit at a time. So mathematically divide the total number of papers you're going to have to read and dole them out. You know, okay, I'll do three papers a day for a week or whatever. And I never do that. I never had the discipline to do that because I hate it so much. I have so much inertia built up around grading that I'm like, well, if I start tomorrow, then it's, you know, 4.5 papers a day. Right. I can handle that, right? And then <laughs> and then pretty soon it's just like all my fucking grading has to happen on Saturday and Sunday. I ruin my weekend. And I'm like, why did I do this to myself? Yeah. I know. Yeah. But you had so much fun in the meantime, didn't you? Not grading. <laughs> I'm of two minds haha, about that because I do the same. I'm a, I'm a master procrastinator. I've actually come to peace with it. I'm a freelancer, right? So I work. I don't have, you know, the, like I. You don't I, have a boss riding herd on you. Exactly. And I've come to peace with it. I've realized that those times in my life where I've started a project in advance, responsibly, I usually um, <laughs> I usually enter this mode where I'm working on the project, but not really. Like, let's say I have to write a document. Oh, yeah, I, I know that state. Yeah, and then you're, you're like noodling around and writing a few sentences here and there, doing a bit of research, but you know that there's no fire in what you're doing at all. You're, you know, you're not. you're not putting words on the page. You're not putting in anything that counts towards a measurable, deliverable outcome. Right. You know, you're just fucking around. You know, and I've done it even in cases where I've actually finished a draft of something ahead of time. I found myself starting it over if there's any time left. Um, so, you know, I have I've had to come to terms with that. But that's not to say I don't know what you're talking about. There are certain types of procrastination that are actually not productive or helpful at all. And I'm guilty of those all the time. And it is another example of those moments where you feel split off, that there's, there are many yous, there are many selves here, and you're passing the buck to another you that you'll have to be at some point. Um, but you actually don't <laughs> care about that guy in the moment. It's exactly that that Homer Simpson quote is so perfect. Uh, that's for tomorrow, yeah. Homer. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> it's so true. I particularly like, yeah, I don't envy that guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because there's a corner of my mind that thinks that. Yeah, I know. Yeah. But fuck that guy. But <laughs> It's crazy. And then that guy resents the yesterday Homer so much. <laughs> <You know? laughs> <laughs> a fucking <It's> so asshole. <laughs> All this by way of entering into our topic, which is in part this idea that, that there are many selves, that each of us is legion in a sense, that we're all many. 
that being one of the models that William James presents to kind of like explain certain types of parapsychological phenomena. Yeah, Um, particularly an idea that he's borrowing from Frederick Myers, one of the founding members of the London Society for Psychical Research, right? which was founded in the late 19th century to study ghosts and spiritualistic mediums and precognition and all these various kind of uh, untamed facts, or uh, a skeptic would say they're not facts at all, but at least we can say untamed experiences. Frederick Myers is a leading researcher in this, and his theory, one of several theories that William James entertains or at least kind of throws out there, is the theory of the subliminal self. Right, which I really like. I I have to say we'll come back to it. Well, why don't you briefly characterize it? Well, I think if you if you feel up to that, I think so. But I or do you feel like you want to go somewhere else first? No, no, I like it. I like I I like the way we went into it, which is to talk about this, like you know, what happens the split off self, yeah, split off self, person who's guilty of infidelity, who's being disloyal, who deserts their regiment, who commits a murder, knowing full well they'll pay the price. That sort of thing is actually a really nice non paranormal way into a topic that has tendrils reaching into the paranormal. So I like the way we came in. We'll come back to it. But I think just by way of of just introducing the episode, we should just mention that today in preparation for our conversation, we read two pieces by William Mm -hmm. James, the great American psychologist, basically the inventor of modern psychology in a sense, in the Anglo-Saxon world at least. The first was... I believe the version we read was Final Impressions of a Psychical Researcher. It's That's a pe- right. It's a piece he wrote for wide consumption, right? He read it for, wrote it for Harper's or something? For the American Magazine. Right. And it was republished in a collection of uh, miscellaneous essays called Memories and Studies, where it appeared under a slightly different name, something like sort of Confidences of a Psychical Researcher. Anyway, it's appeared under a couple of slightly different names. So it's a, a late essay. It's from 1911, which is not long before he died. And so it really does constitute his last word on a study that consumed most of his adult life and had a peculiar importance that is not actually terribly well known, even for people who admire James's writing. Right, that he had this interest in, in, uh, in what would come to be called parapsychology, psychical research. So throughout his adult life, in fact, going way back into his youth, William James had an abiding interest in the paranormal, the supernormal, as he often calls it, uh, an interest he shared with his brother, Henry. And and William James had a number of bizarre experiences in his life that he was not shy about, you know, discussing. Um, Or that he was semi-shy about discussing. That itself is an interesting question. The question of disclosure to me is a really interesting question around this whole issue generally. Right. I mean, actually, it's come up repeatedly in recording our show. Yeah. How much do you want to talk about your own experience? came up in the entities thing where, you know, I kind of felt like, and maybe you did too, that we were kind of letting it all hang out. Uh, You know, maybe not talking in detail about weird experiences, entity experiences, but at least acknowledging that we've had them. Right. Even doing that in an unambiguous way, that's a pretty fraught thing. Like I was kind of stressed out actually before we 
released that episode because I was just like, oh, shit. Yeah. People are going to think I'm crazy. Well, they already do. So, you know, yeah. what, what is there really to be lost? Exactly. You're already perceived as a lunatic. Yeah, it's true. Um, I mean, just look at my hair. <laughs> <laughs> oh, audience, if you can only see. Yeah, I've got terrible bed hair. I, I've got mad scientist hair this morning. It's you're, you're right. He was always careful about who I think he shared this with or in what contexts. But he seems to grow increasingly bold as he gets older, which is fair enough. I mean, he became pretty much a luminary by middle age. He was respected worldwide. One of the first really, truly international American scholars, I think. Tremendous respect in Britain. And so he was safe. You know, he could afford to. It's like you. You have your tenure. Nobody can do that and anything about it. You can talk about this stuff. And, um, but. Yeah. So. Well, you're always scared that people are going to dismiss everything you have to say. Right. I, you know, and so you have to weigh your sense of your professional dignity against the feeling that you have a certain, that you owe something to, uh, I mean, that sounds incredibly pompous to say, but you, you owe something to truth. Right. To speaking your truth, or at least to put it in the parlance of today, keeping it real. Now, and to me, one of the personal failings that I find most contemptible in people is cowardice. Mm -hmm. And one thing I will say about James, you know, he was a physically, he was somewhat a frail individual throughout his life. But he was somebody who had a very vivid sense of the importance of personal courage and who himself was a stone-cold motherfucking G. Right. Like, I think he had a great deal of courage. And so I think he felt he owed some debt to truth as he had experienced it, a very, very large, very important truth, which we can get to. But I would say for now, I would characterize that truth as the awareness that the sensible world, the world as it presents itself to our senses, the world of appearances, we might say, is not the whole thing. Right. Uh, and this is raised, I think, to an intellectual principle and one that we've articulated many, many times. Almost, It is the almost the intellectual principle of the show, that whatever it is you know is never going to be the whole thing. You will never know everything. Yeah. You know, the, mis the mystery of the universe will never be and can never be exhausted, not by you, not by anybody. Yeah, he actually puts that quite clearly in this first piece that we looked at. Oh, yeah. So we he also writes, looked at another piece called yeah. What Psychical Research Has Accomplished, which was published in 1890, also for a popular magazine. Uh, so we have two major statements on psychical research from different phases of his life. Right. And the second piece is almost a kind of survey of the work done by the Society of Psychical Research up to that point, where he basically yeah. just goes over the great founders of the society and what they did and how their work contributed to the project, etc. There's a moment in the, in the first piece where he writes, to no one type of mind 
is it given to discern the totality of truth? Something escapes the best of us, not accidentally, but systematically, which I quite like. Yeah. Not yeah. accidentally, but systematically. That, that, that reality is systematically impervious to totalizing moves on the part of intellectuals yes. or anyone else for that matter. So that, uh, Or to put it in terms that we've used in this show, that the problem is not epistemological, but ontological. Exactly. The constitution of reality in itself prevents any totalizing move from achieving yeah. any real success on the long term. So whenever James expresses this idea, I feel a profound, a really deep kinship with James. And I can see how different he is from the two camps that tend to form around these issues. On the one side, the believers, like call it the spiritist believer camp, the people who believe that it's very clear that a medium is channeling the dead and that the dead people are hanging around us waiting for the chance to communicate and to tell us how great they're doing and that we forgot an important letter in a drawer somewhere and that sort of thing. And, uh, and then the other camp, which is the skeptical camp, which completely just rejects en masse the whole idea of paranormal activity or paranormal phenomena. And James situates himself in the middle in a very, very intellectually robust way when he says that both of these camps are getting it wrong because both of them bring to the table what he calls a kind of sentimentalism, a feeling that one just knows how reality works. And therefore, on that basis, on that presumption, you can already start editing out certain possibilities from the equation. Whereas James says, we can have no such presumption. That presumption that you, that you know how reality works, even in a very vague, broad sense, is anathema to investigating those areas of knowledge that aren't familiar to us yet, those areas of reality that are still mysterious. You can't go into those places with that presumption. It doesn't make any sense. So whenever he expresses this philosophical stance that he takes, I always get a little thrill because to me, like he does seem to mark out a kind of position that has never really become solidified institutionally in the field, but it marks a kind of secret kinship between certain thinkers and certain researchers. It's like a secret alliance. Some people are just embrace this way of looking at things. And for me, I find I obviously very, I'm very, very sympathetic to it. Yeah. He has an interesting way of breaking down this sentimentalism. He contrasts a kind of unnamed, general, psychical enthusiast with one of the Huxley brood. Which one? There's a there's like five fucking Huxleys. Although the one who wrote about psychedelics is cool. Yeah, he's cool. Aldous. There is Sir Julian Huxley, Aldous Huxley, David Bruce Huxley, Andrew Huxley, Jesse Oriana Huxley, Sir Crispin Tickle, Rachel <laughs> Huxley. I just like there's this swarming brood of Huxleys. I think the one we're, that we're actually trying to recall is Thomas Henry Huxley. Thomas, known, that's the one. Yes, known yeah. as Darwin's bulldog. Right. Just like a cloud of flies. Yeah. A cloud of skeptical flies. Overachieving gnats. <laughs> Actually, I quite like Aldous Huxley's book, Doors of Perception, but I have a um, just an instinctive irritation. 
at the idea of the Huxley family, even in advance of knowing very much about them. Maybe it's just the name Huxley. I don't know. <laughs> just like, fuck them for having that name. Right. That's Assholes. A pretty cool name. Um, <laughs> anyway, so, yeah. so um, you know, James is taking up uh, Thomas Huxley pretty legitimately as the avatar, the, the personification of scientific skepticism. And he has a long quote from one of Huxley's books where Huxley is sharpening his verbal blades against spiritist believers. And his argument is, in effect, that if the only argument for spiritism is the utterly banal and commonplace communications that allege to come from the spirit world, then the phenomenon discredits itself out of its own mouth. Right. Like there's nothing to be, clearly there's nothing to be learned from this phenomenon because such communications as purport to be from the spirit world are so nugatory and empty as to inspire only amusement from Huxleyan defender of science. Right. And James's point is that actually in a weird way, the spiritist sentimentalist and the bulldog of reason actually agree on one very important point, is they both believe that the contents of spiritistic phenomena should be, as he puts it, romantic. Right. That they should inspire some subjective feeling in us that there is something marvelous about these communications. He said the only difference is that somebody who, you know, pays a guinea to go to a seance and hear their dear Aunt Gertrude is doing well in the spirit world, he's like, such a person will listen to these utterances and say, that is beautiful, that is romantic. Whereas Huxley will listen to the same utterances and say, that is not romantic. But they are both agreeing that the truth should announce itself with bells, drums, and trumpets. And James is actually making a very different point, which is he's like, you know, reality often will announce itself in the most mundane, trivial, annoying, stupid way. And it's these trivial, annoying, stupid, but exceptional facts to which the psychical researcher devotes themselves. It's in those things that reality actually can be found. But we have to accept that they will always take unexpected and often unlovely forms. And we also have to expect that they're never going to settle down into one kind of phenomenon. You know, one of the things he keeps pointing out is that the nature of these manifestations is plural, that they never seem to sort down to some kind of fundamental essence. He is constantly talking about these things as being freaks or prodigies of nature. He uses, you know, metaphors of like comets, for example, things that are celestial bodies that don't obey regular or periodic motion the way the planets do. Yeah. He also points out that they're often nonsensical in a way. At one point he writes, most occult phenomena are, quote, inwardly as incoherent as they are outwardly wayward and fitful. So to Huxley, that's a sign that it's what James calls bosh, that it's all bullshit. Uh, That it's just meaningless, trivial crap. But for James, the fact that it's trivial and incoherent and strange and and seemingly sometimes fraudulent or partial 
all these things are actually indications that there's something going on because there is, according to James, to the sober observer, the really sober analyst who looks at all the evidence, there will still be a residuum of knowledge that could not have been obtained by the medium, let's say, using the normal channels. Yeah. That even though it's trivial, even though the medium's big revelation, let's say the medium sits down and gets everything wrong except for the fact that a person in the back of the room forgot to cut their pinky fingernail and it's longer than the other nails. Let's say something as trivial as that. Well, if it's true for James, that's actually telling because it's not some romantic revelation that ended up being the real truth. It's some almost irrelevant detail that nevertheless couldn't have been you can't known. Ag- you can't ignore it. You yeah. can't ignore it. I went, and and so, yeah. scientistic types like Huxley are always trying to round reality up to normal. Right, right. And James insists that, no, no rounding. We need the fraction. Right. We need the remainder. James not only was a big fan of the Society for Psychical Research in, in Britain, but he, he was also one of the co-founders of the American chapter or the American version of the Societal for Psychical Research. One of his methodological beliefs was that all that one could do at that point in the story was to collect data. You know, he says the genuine inquirer lets the data collect and bides his time. And he he adds an interesting note. He says he believes that Bosch or bullshit is no more an ultimate element in nature or really explanatory category in human life than dirt is in chemistry. So the modus operandi should be we just look at what happens in these events, in these seances and whatnot. We collect the data and eventually patterns will emerge, but we have to reserve judgment. Whereas Huxley's jumping to a conclusion about how these phenomena should look, and, and so are the spiritists who've already decided on how these phenomena should look. And what's interesting is I also think that James's lifetime or at least long-time commitment to a philosophical pluralism, as evidenced in his wonderful book, A Pluralistic Universe. I think that's at stake in this too, because the romantic view that both spiritualists and skeptics are reaching for is one in which there is some kind of grand final truth, some essence or spirit of which all of these separate phenomena are expressions. And James is sort of saying, no, they might just not, in fact, probably don't. They certainly don't appear to settle down to any common denominator. They don't merge into some kind of, you know, great oneness. They confront us with their stubborn and irreducible particularity, with their plurality. And his insistence on treating the universe in this way and also going against the idea that like any universe, any plural universe is somehow an unromantic universe or an unbeautiful universe or a terrible universe. Like one of his big arguments against Hegelian idealists was that they always seem to be reacting with a kind of philosophical horror at the possibility of any alternative to their monism. Right. And one of the main things he does in a pluralistic universe is to say like, what is so bad about <laughs> a universe whose essence always remains several? And it's an interesting chicken and egg question. You know, did he have a 
loyalty to this pluralistic conception of the universe because his lifelong engagement with spiritualistic or supernatural or paranormal phenomena led him to that conclusion? Or was he interested in the paranormal, etc., because his mind was already primed to accept their motley appearance? Right. That's an interesting question. And I think it might be a little bit of both columns, right? Mm. You know, I, I've always had an interest in this stuff. And I wonder, <laughs> I wonder wh- whether I'm just reflecting personally now because you've made me think of that. Um, but I, I wonder how much of my interest developed from a kind of um, a romantic, fantastical, childish whim that I wasn't able to suppress or to properly sublimate into some productive direction or whether it's because I had certain experiences that like I've mentioned uh, on the entities episode with Stuart Davis, I mentioned the time I saw a UFO and how that affected my interest in UFOs. But I also mentioned that I saw the UFO while I was looking for UFOs. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You know, so, so it's really hard to parse these things out. Whereas I think that I had a somewhat different path I remember once I was talking to you and I quoted a line from Patrick Harper's excellent book, Diamonic Reality. And he's talking about the tricksterish dimension of these phenomena, which also is something that comes through loud and clear in the later of the two essays of James that we're talking about, the Confessions of a Psychical Researcher. We can get to that later. But uh, Harper is talking about the tricksterish dimension of paranormal phenomena. He says something that I've said a number of times that these phenomena seem to know that you're looking at them and they will shrink away from systematic looking which is one problem by the way with the model of research adopted by the society for psychical research and similar organizations like ryan's organization at um uh, was it university of north carolina or duke i can't remember i think maybe duke anyway um but again that's something we can talk about later uh he said by way of summarizing this idea people who want to look at ufos will never find them and i remember saying that to you and you were like well that's doesn't seem to be true from my experience but it's interesting because it was true from my experience you know i think one reason why i have such a bristling dislike and even contempt for the kind of scientistic like pseudo skeptical types the kind of person who's always like, well, actually science, you know, that kind of person, the Reddit atheist or the village atheist type. Yeah. Um, my total dislike and impatience for that kind of toxic masculine nerdery is owed at least in part to the fact that there is a very large part of my own personal makeup that is that guy. Right. That I was at one point you know, maybe I wasn't quite as bad as that, but I had significant parts of my makeup that were like, well, actually. And for me, the domain of the, I don't know, paranormal or spiritual, I mean, to me, the things are continuous with one another, really kind of blackjacked me, really kind of jumped out from behind the bushes and took my wallet. <laughs> so you and I have had somewhat different paths to this sort of thing. We have. We have. I mean, I don't know what to make of that. I don't know either. I don't know if if I got blackjacked earlier and that's it. 
you know, in my life, you know, like mm. it happened when I was young. Because or- I will say once you're blackjacked, at least for me, once I was blackjacked, there's no going back. It's like you can't unring that particular bell. I have to say that there's a cultural element in this. I think that, hmm. okay, so even though we come from the same corner of the world, like really the same corner, you were raised in Sudbury and I was raised in Vanier. So it, it's, it's like, only a couple of hundred miles apart. Yeah, exactly. Plus, culturally, there are many, many similarities. Yeah, it's a very um, franco ontarian part of Right. Canada that I grew up in. That you grew up in. Of course, where when when you grew up, I'm not sure if it was still like that in your childhood, but the the Anglo's lived on one side of town, the Francophones lived on the other, and they were yeah, just two actually. separate worlds. And yeah. the Francophones were seen as kind of like like to, to, to say that Anglo's perceived them as like hobbits is putting it nicely. I think. <laughs> well, it depended on the Anglo. I will say my dad actually was pretty brutal about French Canadians. Yeah, but. I had French Canadian friends and I didn't see what the big fucking deal was. So I think that that might have been generational to some degree. Absolutely. Absolutely. There is a cultural divide, but even that cultural divide unites us because we come from the same part of the world. So whereas I was raised, I'm a French Canadian, you're an Anglo Canadian. We lived in that somewhat striated, somewhat. All jumbled up together. All jumbled up at together. The same yeah, time. because it's a small country, and you can't. Yeah. The caste system existed in people's heads more than it did in any other sense. But my point being this: when I was a kid, my grandmother was a something of a medium. She had a lot of mediumistic experiences, a lot of demonic encounters that she would share with the family sometimes. And not only was that seen as normal, but there was a whole cultural vocabulary to quantify these experiences she had. I had a babysitter, we called her Mammy, who came from northern Quebec and would tell us true stories about werewolves and stuff. So because I was raised outside Quebec, my family or the circles I ran in were never subject to the anti-clerical move that was made in Quebec. The nationalist anti-church kind of will reject this medieval stuff. It never happened in Ontario. Franco-Ontarians tended to remain quite religious and steeped in those old ways of thinking. Mm. And so maybe it's just cultural that I was, not that I was primed to be blackjacked by the supernatural, but that when tiny little supernatural effects happened around me, that I could refer them back to a whole kind of system of thought that existed, that was there for me, which didn't require me to ignore or banish these events. That has the ring of truth to me because it's actually getting back to something that James says. If you say all crows are black, it only takes one white crow to throw that axiom in the garbage, right? Right. And he says, for me, the white crow was this woman, Mrs. Piper, a medium who repeatedly was able to divine things about him that no one, not even his wife, could know. You know, a skeptic would say, well, that's what James says. Yeah. (laughs) Just an anecdote, right? Doesn't mean anything. Somebody tweeted recently, the plural of anecdote is data. And I really yes, like that. Yes, I, really I saw like that. that. Yeah, yeah, I thought that was great. Yeah. But um, the point that he's making is about the brittleness of the at least rigidly scientific worldview. That if you have a worldview that proceeds from the idea that the universe obeys strict laws, that those laws are universally true, they have always existed and they will always exist, they will exist in the same way, 
at all times, in all places, in the universe, forever and ever, amen. If you believe that, then you have an extremely solid and a very hard worldview, but also a very brittle one, because it only takes one white crow to send the whole thing crashing to the ground. Right. Which is one reason why scientistic types, people who have that kind of worldview, will never, ever, ever take any of the anecdotes, as they like to call them, the wild facts, the unassimilated facts. They will never take them seriously, no matter what happens. You know, James is aware of this in both of these pieces, but he still seems, as, at least in the earlier piece, to hold out some perhaps naive hope that if enough people could just kind of bring themselves to train their vision on these strange, exceptional things, surely this rigidity would have to soften some way. Nope. And the point that I'm trying to get to is that your description of your upbringing is of a softened worldview, a worldview that was always a little bit more plastic, more right. able to accept imprints from things, more able to mold around, say, an inconvenient fact like lights in the sky or a ghost or something. It's not an all or nothing worldview where either the ghost exists or my whole worldview exists. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know? Yeah. Uh, and... And so you have are perhaps more of a pliant medium for these kind of things, that these kind of things like your UFO sighting could just sort of be allowed to happen. Whereas I kind of got the feeling that the Anglo world that I grew up in, especially when you consider that my dad was a logical positivist. Right. Like I remember my dad railing about the very idea of the unconscious, which he thought was bosh. Right. The idea of the unconscious, for fuck's sake. A very well-attested phenomenon, but my dad <laughs> objected to it on logical grounds. Did he believe in airplanes? <laughs> I believe he did. Okay. But, I mean, his argument was very sensible. You say, there's this thing called the unconscious, but we're not conscious of it because it's unconscious. Well, then how do you know it exists? Right. Well, that's a very logical objection, except it also seems to be like a monumental kind of missing the point, right? Anyway, that's the world I grew up in. And so it's quite possible that for someone like me, I had a more brittle worldview. I needed a greater shock to send that whole glass edifice to come crashing down. And then I had to build something else to replace it. But for me, that had the feeling of a demolition and rebuilding job, whereas for you, perhaps, it had more of a feeling of, uh, instead of like wholesale demolition and rebuilding, it was sort of more like Gormenghast. Right. And the Titus Grown novels where it's just like adding a little bit here and there. You have this huge disjointed shambling structure that's always being added to. Yeah. You never have to knock the whole thing down and start again. Uh, there were perils, though, I'm sure, on my end, too. One of the main perils being credulity and superstition. There's the other pole, right? And I, have, I can't overplay this cultural thing because I have a lot of skeptical friends that I grew up with. Although... I think very few real skeptics, people I'm talking about, other French Canadians that I knew and grew up with, um, there are some that have a tendency towards skepticism. So I don't want to make it look like I grew up in this kind of magical thinking world. You're from a Gabriel Garcia Marquez right. novel. Well, that no, you just grew up in a magical realist universe. You know, it's, but that's not that far off. I mean, that I, grew, huh. I didn't grow up in a world of flying grannies and stuff. But in a way, yeah. In a way, but in I a did. way, you did. Yeah. My father, when he was a kid, my father and his sister saw the Holy Virgin 
outside their bedroom window. My dad's a very down-to-earth guy, okay? As down-to-earth as you could expect. But when he talks about that, he's like, yeah, we saw that. And it wasn't just a mysterious woman. It was the Holy Virgin because he lived in a cultural nexus of semiotic meanings that allowed him to put that experience in a very clear category, which is probably just as limiting as ignoring it to begin with. Was it the Holy Virgin or was it some kind of fucking succubus from hell you know like <laughs> we we don't know like or was it something else the point is that cultures tend to reduce things and tend to categorize things and i think that what james is getting at here is that we need to loosen the grip of culture on our perceptions so that we can entertain novelty like real novelty yeah. and think yeah. outside but we can still use these cultural categories at least hypothetically at some point in the process to go back to the uh to what you were saying like the worldview that seems so solid but that deep down is quite brittle and james in the first piece we read is expressing the hope that because psychical research exists now the tendency to resort to that materialist presumption will decrease as it is challenged more and more i'll just read what he writes because it's quite good he says Science simply falls back on her general non-possumus, and most of the would-be critics of the proceedings, which are the publication of the society, have been contented to oppose to the phenomena recorded the simple presumption that in some way or other the reports must be fallacious. For so far as the order of nature has been subjected to really scientific scrutiny, it has always proved to run the other way. But then he notes, but the oftener one is forced to reject an alleged sort of fact by the use of this mere presumption, the weaker does the presumption itself get to be. The more you use a presumption to dismiss facts, the weaker the presumption gets because <laughs> the presumption's likelihood becomes less and less as it is challenged. Right. It's a view of what postmodernists would call paradigm shift. It's that the more facts occur, the more we have examples of things that challenge a paradigm, the, the weaker the paradigm becomes, and then eventually the paradigm will just collapse. Uh, it's been a long time since I've read this book or any part of it, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. Kuhn, yeah. Yeah, is pointing out that ideas tend to remain dominant for a very long time with very little change, and then seem to shift suddenly and quickly. Yeah. Um, and this is what is meant by paradigm shift. But it's an interesting question, almost analogous with the question of like gradualism versus a kind of punctuated equilibrium in evolutionary science. You know, does evolution happen at a gradual, consistent rate, or does it happen in sudden spurts and fits and starts? And my understanding, I mean, it's a, certainly a, a, a layman's understanding, is that there's considerable evidence for the latter view, that an environmental system will be in a kind of steady state for a while, and then suddenly there will be a kind of frenzy of adaptation and change. 
And I wonder, at least in the intellectual ecosystem, if this happens for exactly that reason that you just described, that the more inconvenient facts pile up, the more of reality that an existing explanation doesn't cover, the weaker that explanation becomes until there gets to be a point, this is my conjecture, where suddenly you're like, wait a minute, this fucking thing isn't useful at all anymore. And all of a sudden an idea that's been kept at bay for a long time seems almost overnight to become very plausible. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, think I, I think James was hoping something like that would happen, but actually one of the most interesting and one of the most anomalous facts of all is that that never happened. And he started becoming aware of this in his later piece, that there was so little to show for a quarter century of psychical research, and yet enough to show that you couldn't dismiss it. And so you ended up right back at square one, exactly where they started. And now we're 100 years later. And And we're at exactly the same place. It's like we haven't moved at all. Scientistic types will say this is evidence that there's nothing to it, except that there is exactly enough evidence to show that there's something to it, but never enough evidence to show what it is. The problem is that's the weird thing. You can't say there's nothing to it. That's the problem because we have these events. We have these recorded events that are not accountable without resorting to some theoretical possibilities that the current paradigm doesn't allow. So you can pull like a James Randi and just pretend that those incidents didn't never happened. Um, And in some case, actually falsify the record in order to. Yes, of course. I mean, it's tempting to say, well, no. And today we have physicists who believe in this stuff and we have psychologists who take it seriously. We have the Institute of Noetic Research or whatever. We have Dean Radden who's writing books about. But. It was also the case back then. A lot of these... Just as true 100 years ago. Yeah, a lot of these guys were very respected scientists and researchers or humanists. So we're kind of in the same situation. It's really surprising. Do you know what it's like? It's like an ascending shepherd tone. Do you know what a shepherd tone is? I don't know. Educate me. It's easier to hear it than to explain it, but basically it's an auditory illusion. You can have an ascending or a descending shepherd tone where it seems to be going up forever, but it never actually goes anywhere. And the illusion happens because you're cutting out upper partials as you're imperceptibly introducing lower partials. And as those lower partials go up into the threshold of human hearing and then pass out of it, you're then introducing new ones. It's like a conveyor belt. And so your ears hear a sound that goes up forever and yet somehow never gets anywhere. Right. It's It's, just this cascade that never ends, right? It's like the movement in a barber's pole. It is psychical research or research into the paranormal or let's just say the weird weird studies one reason why it doesn't and can't exist as an actual academic field is because of this very fact that however many studies are done however many publications of the proceedings of the society for weird studies are issued by reputable academic presses 
you can guarantee that a hundred years or a thousand years, the state of knowledge about these things is going to remain exactly in the same place. There will be exactly the same equipoise, the same balance between forces of people who are curious about these things and the forces of people who are furiously denying them for whatever reason, whether for religious reasons, because this is the work of the devil, it's a snare and a delusion of the evil one, or else for scientific reasons that this is bosh, that this is nonsense, folly, delusion, you are turning the clock back on the enlightenment, blah, blah, blah. The majority of forces will be lined up against this stuff, but they will never be strong enough to extinguish popular interest in this stuff. And the popular interest in this stuff is never going to be enough to tip the balance of polite and consensus opinion in its favor. Yeah. I, I, would, I would bet every last penny in my bank account on that. I mean, it's an empty bet because I won't be around to collect on it, but... I uh, I am I feel as sure of that as I feel of anything. I'm not as sure. Um, I'm of two minds. I mean, part of me is a hundred percent on board with you on that. Another part of me thinks that it looks that way when you're in a paradigm. It looks that way, but there's the possibility that not some empirical breakthrough, but maybe just a conceptual breakthrough would allow us to um, at least integrate into our standard worldview certain types of phenomena that have been relegated to the Bosch category mm-hmm. until now. And I think that's already happened. So one change I've noticed, one difference I've noticed between this text that we read from 1911 and the type of things that are written today is that... Like Dean Radin's Real Magic, right, for example. The perfect example. Another one we I wanted to bring up maybe is Eric Wargo's new book, Time Loops. Oh, I want to read that. Yeah. I want to read that. Have you been looking at it? Yeah, I listened to the uh, Expanding Mind episode with Eric Davis about it, mm. um, but I haven't read the book yet, but I'm looking forward to it. But one difference is that certain types of phenomena are now accepted that were considered supernormal or paranormal back then. A lot of 19th century psychology Early work on the unconscious, on automatism, automatic writing, hypnotism, magnetism, that sort of thing. Back then, it belonged to the same category as ghost thought transference and that spirit mediumship and all that. Very true. We don't have any explanation for them still today, really. We have different theoretical models for them, but at least we're not denying they exist. So automatism, the ability that you could engage in complex purpose-driven behavior without being in control is now a known phenomenon in psychology. And actually, James points this out in his earlier piece, What Psychical Research Has Accomplished. If there is anything which human history demonstrates, it is the extreme slowness with which the ordinary academic and critical mind acknowledges facts to exist, which present themselves as wild facts with no stall or pigeonhole, or as facts which threaten to break up the accepted system. In psychology, physiology, and medicine, wherever a debate between the mystics and the scientifics has been once for all decided, it is the mystics who have usually proved to be right about the facts, while the scientifics have had the better of it in respect to the theories. The most recent and flagrant example of this is quote, animal magnetism, whose facts were stoutly dismissed as a pack of lies by academic medical science the world over, 
until the non-mystical theory of hypnotic suggestion was found for them, when they were admitted to be so excessively and dangerously common that special penal laws, forsooth, must be passed to keep all persons unequipped with medical diplomas from taking part in their production. Stigmatizations, invulnerabilities, instantaneous cures, inspired discourses, and demoniacal possessions, the records of which were shelved in our libraries but yesterday in the alcove headed superstitions, now under the brand new titles of Case of Hysteroepilepsy, are republished, reobserved, and reported with an even too credulous avidity. Right. No, I mean, a, a very clear-cut example of this sort of thing is the idea of possession, right? Right. In the Middle Ages, you could become possessed by a demon at any time. And that demon would use your body like a puppet to accomplish its nefarious ends and then leave you to pay the price for it. Well, in a sense, we've retained that 100% to the letter in our legal system with you know, criminal responsibility. The idea that in a certain state of mind, you're not actually responsible for your actions, even though your actions might be quite complex and sophisticated. If it can be demonstrated that you're acting under the direction of some, I don't even know what exactly psychologists call the, these forces, if anything, but we seem to have acknowledged that a person can seem to be in possession of their faculties while in fact they're being controlled by psychic slash demonic slash something forces that determine their behavior. I mean, a lot of these things just get a little bit sanitized and then that just conveniently allows us to overlook them. Hypnotism is just as mysterious now as it ever was. Yeah, it's true. But it's real. Have you ever seen, did you see that TED demonstration recently of hypnotism? No. It's It's incredible what a hypnotist can do. A, hyp a good hypnotist can hypnotize someone in a second. It's like, it's not like the pendulum swaying and you it's not <laughs> a like gold that. watch it's swaying like, in front of someone's eyes it's literally like a switch boom the person's in a trance and all of a sudden this person will start doing crazy shit in front of a big crowd of people and then we'll at the hypnotist's behest we'll actually forget every detail of it and then wake up it's crazy but you know here is something interesting though it's like okay you would think that something like that you would say to a skeptic look the evidence of your own eyes and assuming they don't pull some bullshit move like, well, maybe the, the hypnotized subject was a confederate, was in on the... A plant, yeah. Like, yeah, a plant. Assuming they don't do that bullshit thing, it's almost sort of like an antibody system or like a self-repair system. How quickly the collective mind that doesn't want to see these things will debug such that, just as James points out, formerly mysterious or demoniacal manifestations we simply come up with a scientific sort of name for them and we're like, oh, all right, we got to sort it out. That's like the low-hanging fruit explanation for all these things. In as much as there's anything to so-called psychical phenomena, those are scientific things that are not as yet understood, but as one citadel after another falls to the forces of science, we discover what these things really are. It's not demons at all. It's the activity of the unconscious whatever. Now, there's a, a question to be raised here, which a pragmatic question, pragmatic in the sense of James's pragmatic philosophy, they're saying that are you merely re-describing phenomena 
in such a way as to appear to conjure away the essential mystery, but not actually to do away with the essential mystery. You and I would probably agree that that is exactly what is happening, where mysterious phenomena are rebranded. Like a great example is sleep paralysis or temporal lobe epilepsy are standard explanations for all kinds of weird shit. We're like, oh, well, you can't really see auras and you can't really speak to gods and angels and so on. You just have temporal lobe epilepsy. But actually, when you think about it, temporal lobe epilepsy, whatever physical change is happening in the brain doesn't actually change the truth status of a given communication from an angel. Do you see what I'm saying? That might just be the physical reason why you're having that communication. It might be the occasion of it. A good analogy for the fallaciousness of that sort of pseudo explanation is imagine someone's watching a movie on TV and you're a skeptic and you ask them, what are you watching? And the person says, I'm watching Gone with the Wind. And then you say, no, 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 no. You're actually watching a television set. Yes. It's like it's completely missing mm -hmm. the content of the experience. Yeah. It's yes. it's reducing the content of the container. So Exactly. So the epilepsy thing says nothing about the content of the experience. In fact, it's a ploy to dismiss the content of the experience. Yes. But the content of the experience at the what James calls the personal level, the content of the experience is the experience for the yes. person. <laughs> and remains unbanishable. Right. And But what's interesting is that once you're aware of the trick, all these things that to me used to seem like absolutely unquestionable, ironclad, adamantine, proof against any possible, like there's no going back to the enchanted world because we know that... I can see like an electroencephalograph of someone's brain lighting up in a certain way when they claim to have angelic communication. I can see it, therefore this completely dismisses phenomena. Now that we're talking about it, and after years of thinking about this stuff, the fallacy of that attempt to use the container to dismiss the content is so obvious. It, it feels like a child could see through that. And yet the fact that it worked on me and it works on almost everybody, almost all the time, almost seems itself to be a kind of variety of hypnotic suggestion. Right. Yeah. Like, here's here's an interesting thing that actually Lionel Snell just sent me a copy of a little pamphlet that he self-published, which are some notes to a larger publication he did on his Abramelin diaries. He, decades ago, 40 years ago, as one of the few people who ever conducted the famous Abramelin operation. And he wrote a little pamphlet explaining some of the things around that. And I just read this with great enjoyment the other day. And in it, he has, tells an anecdote about something that happened with, um, I don't know if whether it's something he witnessed personally or he read about, but like a, a hypnotist who planted a post-hypnotic suggestion in a subject that Bob will disappear before your eyes, right? And the question is, can you engineer it so that somebody can see a miracle? And if they see a miracle, what will happen? Will they go crazy? Will their entire worldview change? And so this post-hypnotic suggestion is like, Bob will disappear before your very eyes. And then what happened? Okay, so like, you know, the subject comes awake and then the post-hypnotic suggestion is triggered. There's some, I don't know, like a word that you use or something to trigger the state. And what happened at the moment that the state is triggered and Bob is supposed to disappear is that the hypnotized subject simply looked away, <laughs> just turned his back on Bob. So right. Bob disappeared before his very eyes. Right. right. 
And then was asked, like, oh, where did Bob go? He's like, oh, he must have uh, walked out of the room, but but wouldn't turn back, wouldn't, like, look over <laughs> his shoulders to see where he was. And then when the, the hypnotic suggestion, oh, Bob will reappear before your eyes, he just turned around. Yeah, right. Oh, it's so good. And from the hypnotized subject's subjective point of view, nothing extraordinary happened at all. Right. No miracle. No, that's that's supremely interesting. There's one role-playing game that I've played in my time called Changeling. And in this game, the players take on the roles of people who were taken into fairy and tortured by these amoral creatures, we call the fae, and then mm-hmm. released back into the world. And they found that they've been replaced by a fetch oh, yeah. uh, of themselves. The fairies left a copy of them behind. And then you're, the game is all about coping with this crazy uh, experience you've had. And But you also, as you come That's back... That's a cool premise. It's very cool. And as you come back from fairy, you also come back with some of its energy and some of its power. So you become a changeling of sorts. You, you become part fairy yourself. So you might have an appearance like you might have horns or something. But humans don't see those aspects of you because of something called, I think it's called the veil. And the veil is just a mystical, metaphysical force that stops, that makes humans look away from crazy shit. Unless they're particularly gifted or they've been touched, fey touched or whatever, then all of a sudden they can see through the veil. But the idea is that we as humans have a tendency to overlook or ignore anything that might challenge not just our personal worldview, but a very specific modern worldview Mm -hmm. that somehow we are, in a sense, hypnotized, whereas other cultures don't seem to be because other cultures deal with magic every day and other historical eras in our own culture have been open to magic. Some veil has fallen in front of us so that we're actually not able to by and large, we're unwilling to look at things and see them for what they are. That incident that I described last time with Stuart about the UFO, I mean, I couldn't believe my teacher's refusal to look outside. Just one look. Yeah. That struck me, that detail. I, I kept yelling at him, like, look, look, you, you look outside. And he, all he kept doing was looking at me and shaking his head, like, what are you talking about? Oh, talking? that's crazy. <laughs> it's really strange. Almost like dealing with a hypnotized subject, somebody acting under a compulsion. Right. Because I guess he just, I guess his mind wouldn't have been able to handle that, whatever it was. Maybe it's some kind of like subliminal psychic self-defense mechanism. Like Something like mind that. Mind you, on some level, if you turn around and look at that thing, that will fuck your shit up. But what makes modern so weak that they can't face what medieval people faced as a matter of course, yeah. or at least entertained as, as part of the world? It's, well, we it's are fairness. fragilized, and I think we're fragilized in ways we don't understand. If we get back to a conversation we were having in our Lovecraft episode, uh, where we concluded, I think, was talking about Lovecraft as the poet of the unbuffered self. Right, right. That's Charles Taylor's idea that the essence of the modern subject is a kind of buffering where we are swaddled in layers of protection against psychic penetration, against the idea that there are spirits, for example, that can possess us or take us over, that, you know, our ways of thinking serve as a kind of buffer against those things. So on the plus side, we're no longer susceptible to the evil eye or any of these kind of things that plagued our ancestors. But then on the other hand, it's a kind of like the perils of hygiene, like 
you know, that people who are germaphobes and they use gallons of disinfectant on every square inch of their house and they're like terrified of being infected by things. They buffer the shit out of their lives. They're actually, their immune systems are really weak because they don't have uh, a natural immunological ability to deal with microbial shocks, you know, shocks to the system from germs. You know, on that note, the Leslie was telling me about an article she read last week about childhood leukemia. And this doctor's had this breakthrough, 30 years of research into childhood juvenile leukemia, which is the most common form of cancer I think kids get. And it's quite devastating. And his conclusion was that there are two main factors that determine whether a child will get leukemia. One is a genetic anomaly. And the other one is the absence of an infection in the first year of life. If a child doesn't get an infection of some sort that prompts their immune system to activate within the first year of life, when it is activated, it'll go haywire. And um, Oh, that's interesting. And so, yeah, like, yes, we could also just observe the parallelism between germ theory and and what medieval saw as demons because medieval saw demons in every little parcel of matter they're little demons doing things if you ask a medieval person to describe the demonic world uh, it would sound a lot like the germ world that we now live in so it's another example of how we've managed to import the same worldview, but just give it a kind of scientific sheen or a scientific backing of some sort that allows us, but it manifests in the same way. People are afraid of germs like people were afraid of demons. It's the same thing. And the rituals people will enact in order to banish their homes from these alien yeah. intruders are pretty elaborate and pretty impressive. So Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's interesting. But I wanted to go back to the part I was talking earlier about, about of being of two minds. Like you were saying you would bet everything in your bank account that we'll be in the same situation 100 years as we are now. And I was mm-hmm. saying that part of me disagrees because there have been changes. Now I'm not so convinced that that's the case after what we just discussed because a lot of the so-called advances that have been made are really just kind of like paying lip service or just recognizing a phenomenon, giving it the appearance of an explanation, but in fact, just as a way of not thinking about it anymore. Yeah. Um, But the other part of me agrees with you. And there's a part in this, the later piece of James's where he presents a theory that might account for that, why there is no progress in psychical research. He says If one takes the theory of evolution radically, one ought to apply it not only to the rock strata, the animals and the plants, but to the stars, to the chemical elements, and to the laws of nature. There must have been a far-off antiquity, one is tempted to suppose, when things were really chaotic. Little by little, out of all the haphazard possibilities of that time, a few connected things and habits arose and the rudiments of regular performance began. So what he's saying is that even the laws of nature, it's almost absurd to think of them as somehow transcendentally pre-existing the world, that they may themselves be the results of repeated patterns over time and yeah, habits. Habit. Habits. Yeah. Like, uh, which is very similar to Rupert Sheldrake's idea of morphic resonance. Right. Which, which or morphogenetic built, resonance, whatever he calls it. Which he owes in part to Henry Bergson a lot. He's a big fan of Bergson. So, yes, mm. the idea that the laws of physics are more like habits than laws. 
So anyway, James goes on to say basically that the laws of nature are contingent. So there's always the possibility that a little bit of the original lawlessness intrudes. The original chaos where these laws didn't apply yet is still there. It's still the fundamental reality. And so sometimes you might have these anomalous, contingent weirdnesses that happen that don't actually have a legal or a physical or even theoretically conceivable mechanism behind them. Yeah. They might just They're be... parts of pure chaos. They're just the pure chaos. He says, on such a view, these phenomena ought to remain pure Bosch forever. That is, they ought to be forever intractable to intellectual methods yeah. because they should not yet be organized enough in themselves to follow any laws. Wisps and shreds of the original chaos, they would be connected enough with the cosmos to affect its periphery every now and then, as by a momentary whiff or touch or gleam, but not enough ever to be followed up and hunted down and bagged. Their relation to the cosmos would be tangential solely. So nice. And he doesn't want to resort to this theory because he says it's too early. We don't know yet. But now we're 100 years later. <laughs> James has been dead for a century. <laughs> so maybe it's time to start entertaining that theory, which I really like. For me, it connects directly to what Mayasu's talking about with hyperchaos. Yeah, I was just thinking yeah. that. And also to Jung's idea of synchronicity. What if every instance of telepathy, say, is just a coincidence? Okay. Yeah. But what if there's a mechanism, and I'm using the word wrongly, some weird agency by which coincidences can be manifested? Can a kind be... of causeless cause. Yeah, it's exactly what we're talking about with Joshua Ramey. So maybe the answer to a lot of these things is what Joshua is getting at in his paper when he talks about the diviner's cause. Or when he talks about the aleatory nature of intelligibility as such. Exactly. Now let's unpack that. Your, your turn. <laughs> <laughs> well, just sort of like the idea that what is intelligible, for example, a synchronicity. Like yeah. Mark Twain's experience of seeing his own brother arrayed as for a funeral at the same time as his brother was killed in an accident half a world away. That kind of thing. That kind of shit happens all the time. I've had dreams like that that told me of things that were happening somewhere else. You know, what Jung calls synchronicities, and synchronicity is the a-causal connecting principle. And when you think about it, that's really puzzling. And in fact, there's a philosopher whose name now escapes me, who has rigorously critiqued and, and tried to demolish Jung's idea of synchronicity because of this fundamental logical incoherency. I wish I could remember the guy's name, but I can't. The problem with that is the a-causal connecting principle. If it's a principle, it's a cause. Right. You say it's a principle, it's a force, or it's a reason why the dream and the event are connected. But th then you're saying it's a-causal. Yeah. So it's an a-causal principle. You're saying basically it's an a-causal cause, a cause that has no cause. It's the thing that results in a coincidence of meaning. You know, one definition of synchronicity, it's like two things sharing the same meaning that happen in conjunction with one another. In this case, a dream of a relative's death and the death. It's okay, so that's meaning, right? Right. That's intelligibility. Right. It's that which we can interpret. There's no meaning without... Uh, human beings who are interpreting that meaning. Right. Or at least some kind of 
Oh, here I'm getting into metaphysical deep waters. Whatever. I'm gonna, we can cut that last sentence out. I'm not sure I want to defend that idea. but um, No, I think you're onto something. I, but, but, but the idea is that that intelligibility is not necessarily owed to a cause. That its cause, its fundamental cause, its principle is causeless. Hence, we're talking about the aleatory or the chance nature of intelligibility as such. So, so we are in deep waters, but I think this is really important to try to get out there. And it is a, a real mind fucker. So the, there's, um, okay, one, one possible theoretical avenue we have here, one available avenue is Deleuze's idea of the quasi-cause. Okay, hmm. so Deleuze thought that certain effects, for example, effects of sense, what something means, actually doesn't belong to the same nexus of causal forces that, that, that underlies these effects. So, for instance, the glimmer of the sun on the surface of a pond is an effect in itself that's not reducible to the star called the sun and the, the, the nature of water and the light and the time and the atmosphere and all those things. Those things all add up to uh, an event that actually transcends those causes. And you can't make sense of anything in life without acknowledging that quasi-causal special effects sense of effect that happens on the surface because that's where life happens. So, yeah. but so you can't you can't bring in you can't import your ideas of of sheer kind of like mechanistic causation into that world because that world is he calls it he calls it, they're still causes but they're quasi causes in a sense that feels like they're weak causes but I think what Deleuze is saying is that the weak causes or the more uh, contingent sort of cause is the mechanistic ones. The quasi-cause is the actual energy of the universe itself. Yes. That the real causation happens at a much more bizarre level than the mechanistic chain of cause and effect, the kind of Newtonian... It's happening at the level of meaning. At the level of meaning. And then everything else follows from that. So, for instance, often the causal chain that brings an event into being becomes important... After the event, the event is the thing that spurs you to look for its causes. And then the causes will manifest after it's happened. So in Deleuzean metaphysics, there is a way in which events precede their causes. That's very fucked up. So something happens and then there's a sense, there's a meaning. And then we look and then the causes manifest and time almost flows backwards to manifests the event in the form that it took so that's one way of looking at it and you know by the way i think that that was an idea that marshall McLuhan was after he says that that strangeness of like effects preceding causes that that happens under conditions of electronic media but to me that was actually a situation where he's trying to put a name to something that happens as a fundamental aspect of reality 
he's a, a mystical Catholic. And so like he has that intuition, but he knows it's a little too weird to say that that's just what reality is. So then you say, well, in electronic media, that can happen for reasons that are always very vaguely defined. Right. But I think that he's actually after something very similar. If you understand the universe as pure expression, the universe is always already aesthetic, which is an idea that came up when we were discussing that chapter of Deleuze and Guattari on the refrain. That is perhaps what we're talking about. Another piece I wanted to add to it that I think is complementary to, to that is Mayasu's observations about the nature of hyperchaos and then the nature of the absolutely infinite possibility of reality. So, for instance, let's go back to Jung. So Jung says synchronicities are a causal. That means that if you think of yourself as a Jungian and then a synchronicity happens, let's say a dream of the death of a loved one and their actual death in real life, and you start to look for the forces by which these two things could have happened the way they did, or the mechanism, the spiritual mechanism that would allow you to see into the nature of time and all that, and, and then see this event before it happened, or while it was happening, then you're doing it wrong. Because Jung says there is no cause. There is no transcendental reason why these two things manifested. It is just a coincidence. But the coincidence is meaningful. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's how he frames it. So what Mayasu makes possible with his philosophy is the process by which a coincidence like that could be brought into being. Now, that sounds like that sounds causal, but it's not causal. You don't cause a coincidence to happen. A coincidence occasions itself as an event. And if you were to say something like, well, what are the chances that you dream of your uncle Bob passing away at the very moment where he passed away, what would be the odds of that happening? Mayasu would say, no, 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 no. I've said already we're outside causality. So whenever you're asking me for the odds, you're smuggling causality back in. You're presupposing the contingency of causation in this realm I'm talking about, which is actually outside causation. So, for instance, remember that large sum of money thing I did? I did this yeah. this magical working to get a large sum of money, and I got a check in the mail the next day that had a very largely written sum. Yeah, the word sum in big letters. Yeah, the sum. And it was a pitiable sum of money. It was like 18 bucks or something. Right. After that happened, we had a long discussion over email about, well, how could that be? Did my mind go back and cause all these things to happen? Or did it just create, occasion the coincidence invite the coincidence that some accountant sent me that check at that time and that I performed the ritual and that blah, 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 blah. So you can't assess these things probabilistically because by doing so, you're presupposing the very system that your theory pretends to transcend. So if there is a level of pure events or pure meaning or pure sense outside of the probabilistic causal machine that those events use to manifest, then those events can't be assessed on the basis of that machine. You have to 
look at the world truly as expression first and foremost. It's like if you want to write a book or a poem, the poem occurs to you first, not all the words of it, but the event of the poem is the first thing. It's the effect. But then you have to go through the the difficult business of causally bringing this effect into being. But what came first was the effect, the inspiration, the lightning strike of the poem. And then it's in light of this event, which is atemporal, ahistorical, that the chain of causes coheres as an as a process then it starts to make sense that you can actually that it actually matters that you got up and wrote and worked on it and did the other thing i don't know it's not it's it's very hard to be clear somebody could say like but where does that lightning flash of insight come from and i'm not saying i know the answer to that question but i like to contemplate the possibility that the only acceptable answer to that would be uh for no reason. Right. Just cause. Just it's, cause. It's exactly what Meyasu says. Pour rien. For nothing. That's his yeah. thing. It's like all those big metaphysical questions. Why is there something instead of nothing? And Meyasu's... Just cause. Me, just cause. By asking the question, all you're doing is expanding the territory that needs to be explained. You're just make, <laughs> You're just postponing or pushing back. At some level, you have to just realize that there is no reason for anything. Yeah. And uh, that's... From which point of view, the universe is just... Everything is just gratuitous. Gratuitous is a good word because it, to me, it connotes grace. And, and gr- a gift. A gift. And grace in Christian theology is a type of causation. But it's the gratuitous, non-unnecessary causation. It's a form of causation that has no laws. It has to be just freely given. It's God's self-communication, they say, the theologians say, God's self-communication to man. And You know, this is... Oh, I'm sorry. So, yeah, no, but it's just... it's a, Gratuitous is a good word. I like that word. I mean, this is something also that I think in certain states of meditation, Buddhists sometimes will report because, you know, your attention is being focused in, like deeper and deeper and deeper into the micro... <laughs> to the point that it's not your attention anymore at all. It, I realize that makes no sense, but I'm just going to have to let that one lie. But um, there is this sense. I'm not saying it's an experience because who would be experiencing it? But let's just say there is a sense that the universe winks out of existence and back into existence. What an odd thought that this universe might just wink out of existence, all of it, everything, everything on the table in front of me, everything in your office that I'm looking at through Skype right now, the all the land around it, the whole globe, everything, zap out of existence and boom, back into existence exactly the same way as it was before. And of course, a skeptic would say, well, that's your subjective experience, to which the mystic says, Oh, never mind. <laughs> right? You know, right. those two people are never going to have a conversation. But it's interesting because I do think that this is not just a wacky idea that we're just cooking up between us. But there are precedents for this way of thinking. Put it that way. Right, right. If there's one thing the mystic has over the skeptic, it's that the mystic acknowledges that the locus of life, the locus of existence is the personal you know, the, the yeah. realm of meaning, the realm of sense. The skeptic imagines that the world that he perceives is more objective 
than the mystic's world. But in yeah. fact, the world that the skeptic perceives is a conceptual model in the skeptic's head, which for its part bathes in the same subjective ocean of weird meaning as the mystics. <laughs> There's just no way out of the fact that even if your goal is to explain away the world as a, a mechanical construct, completely uh, bereft of any real sense or value or meaning, even if that's your goal, you have to ascribe some value to that goal to pursue it, which means that you've already denied your own conclusions. If you think it's worth it to prove the world is worthless, <laughs> then the world is not worthless because one thing is left that's worth to prove. Like, there's just no mm. way out. In the end, we're all mystics. And, um, mm. and we just have to face that. And maybe if there is a paradigm shift, it won't be so much that we'll all switch to some idealistic new age way of thinking, but that we will come to realize that all of our attempts to explain the universe and to explain it as a non-human separate thing that we could know objectively, that all of that was part of a deeply mystical aspiration that ensures by the mere fact of its existence that we remain in a world that is as enchanted now as it ever was and that we're just doomed to enchantment. Consider subscribing to Weird Studies on iTunes, Stitcher, or another podcast service. You can also follow us on Twitter or support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel. Thank you for listening.